0: As we continue to go through our study of the Beatitudes, we are taking apart one piece at a time. This morning, we started with those who were poor in spirit and discussed what that actually meant and the impact of that and understanding that unless we have that mindset of being poor in spirit, of being humble people and understanding our need for God, then the rest of really the teachings of Christ wouldn't even affect us. They wouldn't cause us to do anything because unless we understand our need, then why would we choose to do anything else? But that second point that Jesus describes in Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 1, going to the end of the Beatitudes in particular, I believe verse 9, he goes through and describes these different ideas and tries to help through each individual step. And the second thing he deals with is, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now, if we take that phrase and we break it down, it starts to sound a little bit strange If I describe the first word, blessed, to be happy or to be considered happy, if I'm breaking that down and actually looking at that definition, the verse actually says, Be considered happy when you mourn, for you will be comforted. Now, for us, that might seem a little strange. Why on earth would I want to be considered happy? Because I'm mourning. Now, this term mourning can carry a lot of different ideas, and we're going to talk about some of those tonight and what it means for every sense, but I find it interesting that he placed that directly after, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There's a level of mourning that takes place when we understand that we're in the wrong. There's a level of mourning that takes place when I find out that what I've been doing is against God and there's a sorrow to that, a level of sorrow there. So Jesus is taking this position. He says, Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is those who are going to make up the Lord's kingdom. And blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. There is a source for comfort. There is a path that one can follow to this level of comfort, and that's what we're going to be discussing this evening. We're going to be breaking down this idea of mourning and showing different mindsets in relation to it and discussing biblical mourning. Biblical mourning. Now, there's... If you go online for more than 5-10 minutes and try to search ways to mourn or ways to find comfort in times of mourning and all of these different things, you're going to find about a billion and a half ways of doing it. Because everyone has gone through it in a different way. In fact, there's a statement that I've heard probably my entire life and everyone mourns in a different way. Everyone copes in a different way. Everyone struggles in a different way. Some resort to different emotions, some resort to anger, some resort to fear, some resort to stress, some resort to seclusion. There's lots of different ways that people deal with this. But we're going to try to do this in the most simple way possible tonight because we, I could be up here for six hours and not even scratch the topic of everything that's included in mourning. But we're going to break it down to two simple points. First of all, we're going to talk about unbiblical or ungodly mourning. And the second point will be biblical or godly mourning. It's a pretty simple way for us to remember. First of all, let's look at ungodly mourning. Ungodly mourning. Is there a way that we can mourn or be sorrowful in an ungodly way? Okay, what are we talking about here? How do we break this down? The first thing is sorrowing over leaving sin. Sorrowing over leaving sin. Now, what do I mean by this? I miss that old life. I miss how I used to live. You know, back in the day, I used to have so much fun. Back in the day, I used to fill in the blank. Missing a life of sin, missing a life that was against God and wishing I had that back. The reason this is ungodly, friends, is because if we're at this stage, we're already in the wrong. (laughs) We're already in the wrong. Why? How can you say that, Josh? How can you say that? Think about Lot and his family. Think about how that played out for his family. Just a few weeks ago, we talked about that exact idea and how Lot's family were comfortable where they were, so much so that when the city was destroyed, what did God tell his family not to do? Do not look back at that city. Do not look back at the city. And what was the first thing that Lot's wife did? Looked back at the city. Look back at the city. Miss that old way. Jesus himself described, no man having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of heaven, Luke nine sixty two. What do I mean by that? What does Jesus mean when he says that you can put your hand to the plow and turn back? We start the work and we leave. We start the work. We do what we're supposed to do, but then we say we miss our old life. We miss the way that things used to be. Paul described in Later on in the Scriptures, in one of his epistles, he says that Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world. It's no accident that in the book of 1 John that he describes that we're not to love the things of this world. Why? They're against God. But there's a level of mourning that takes place for people when they separate themselves from the ways of this world. Why? Because there's an old life that you're putting to death. You're leaving this behind. You're moving on to something far better. Something different than the way you've been living. But with that comes some pain. Comes some difficulty. What do I mean by that? Loss of friendships. Loss of family. Loss of acquaintances. Loss of position. There are many things that people have lost. When my dad was a college minister... At a particular congregation, there was a girl that they had been studying with and really trying to help bring her to Christ. Finally, she, un- she understood what she had to do. She became a member of the Lord's church. And it was an exciting time for everybody for a short time. <laughs> because right after that took place, her family disowned her completely. All the insurance taken away, took car away, took everything away. There's pain and there's difficulty in following after Christ because the ways of the world want that destroyed. The world doesn't want us to be doing what we're doing. The world acts as an enemy to the Lord and what all He is trying to do. And so with that comes difficulty. With it comes pain. But sorrowing over a life that we used to live in sin, that's an ungodly form of mourning. Now, I want to make something very clear with all of this. When we're discussing these different ways of feeling sorrow, emotions are a difficult thing to control, and I think anyone can agree with that. They're a difficult thing to control, and sometimes the emotions of something get the better of us. But there are temptations that are involved in that as well. God experiences emotion. He gave us every aspect of who we are. In fact, God has experienced wrath, joy, Pride, he's experienced all of those things. He's been proud of his servant Job, remember that? The problem is, is when we take those emotions and we fall back into a way of thinking that's against God, or we fall back into a way of living that's against God, that's where the problem comes. That's where the difficulty is. In the book of James chapter 1, we learned that temptations themselves, that's not the sin. That's not the point itself. Just being tempted by something is not the problem. Engaging in it is. Well, how do I know that? Because how James described it in James chapter one, starting in verse fourteen, he describes that God is not tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man, but every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. And shortly after that, then when lust hath conceived, bring forth sin, and sin when it is finished bringeth forth death. Do not err, my beloved brethren. He tells them not to engage in those things. He says, there's temptations that are there. It's pleasurable to the eye. You want to take of it. But if Adam and Eve hadn't taken of the fruit, they would not have been lost. Just seeing it, seeing that it was good for fruit, was not the problem. It's when they allowed it to bring them into sin. But this is the temptation here. When we sorrow over the past life that we lived, it's a temptation to go back into it. It's no accident that in Romans chapter 14, Paul was describing the meat offered to idols and he was telling them that I would rather not eat meat at all than cause one of my brethren to stumble. In reference to that particularly, he was saying that by taking of this, this was causing some people to stumble. It was causing some people to look at this and to say, well, that was how things used to be back in the day and I used to be a part of this pagan lifestyle. And some of them might miss it. Some of them might be tempted to go back into it. Because, you know, things were kind of nice back then. Or we can look at how Paul even dealt with those who used to be Jews and they wanted to bring Judaism back into Christianity. They said, hey, let's follow the. we need to follow the old law because that's the word of God. Paul had to deal with that over and over again. So there are things that are ungodly forms of mourning. But continuing on, sorrowing over being caught in sin. Now there's a specific reason why I phrased it the way that I did. I'm sure many of us at one point or another either were on the receiving end or the giving end of this conversation. You're just sorry that you got caught. You're just sorry that you didn't get away with it. The kid has the hand in the cookie jar. I'm so sorry. I'm so, I didn't mean to take the cookie. My hand fell into the cookie jar. No, you're just sorry you got caught. <laughs> you're sorry you couldn't wipe the crumbs off your face. See, this is the problem that we run into, is so many people are sorry when they get caught. But that's not the form of sorrow that works repentance. In fact, let's look at 2 Corinthians chapter 7 for a moment. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Specifically, we're going to be looking at verses 9 and 10 in particular. Here, Paul writing to the church in Corinth says, Now I rejoice not that you were made sorry but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner, that you might suffer loss for, or from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. The sorrow of the world, the sorry that I got caught, that leads to death. Why? Because it's not any change that's taking place. When I'm sorry, genuinely sorry... I'm willing to make the change. I'm willing to say, okay, this is where I was before, but I can't do this anymore. This hurt God. This hurt my friends. This hurt my family. I cannot do this anymore. But if I'm sorry I got caught, I'm just going to be more careful next time. I'm just going to be more careful next time. Paul emphasizing this point that you were sorry. The people he was talking to, the people in Corinth, he says you were sorry, but it worked repentance. That led you away from that sin and led you back to God. He said that's the godly form of sorrow. But it's ungodly to be sorry over just being caught in sin. What else? Sorrowing like those with no hope. This one's a little different than the first two because this is a mourning out of weakness, not out of sin. Many people struggle with what happens after. Many people struggle with the moment of losing a loved one or losing a family member of some sort, and it's a painful experience. It's a difficult experience, and in the heat of those moments, sometimes you can become distracted, and instead of looking at what is awaiting that family member or what is coming hereafter, I can be just so broken that they're just gone, (laughs) that they're gone, but Paul, writing in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13, he tells them not to sorrow as those who have no hope. Why? He says, because you know where they're going. You know where they're going. I'm reminded of David when his son was on his deathbed. And while his son was on his deathbed, David was sitting beside the bed. He was praying. He was in sackcloth. He was not eating. He was waiting for just something to happen to save his child. And when his servants discover that his son had died, they go to him and they say, He's just going to die. We're not going to be able to tell him this. How can we tell him his son is dead? And as they go to David, they tell him that his son had died, and what, is it, what do we read that David did? He changed his clothes, he washed himself, and he started to eat. Now his servants were shocked by this. David, why are you, why are you not in mourning? The reality was David was mourning. He was sorrowful that it happened, But notice what he said. I cannot bring him back. But I can go to him. I can go to him. Sorrowing is those who have no hope are those who understand there is no chance of a reconnection. There's no chance that I will ever see that person again. But for those of us who are Christians, those of us who have family members that are living a godly life, we have hope. We have hope of something hereafter. We have hope that one day we will see that family member again. We have hope that we can one day be in that same place with them if we stay the course. Now that's an exciting thing. That's something we can hold on to and we can just find comfort in knowing that there is something better out there. But in the heat of the moment, many can become distracted. Many can forget really who their God is. And he's telling them this as a reminder. Not to sorrow as those who have no hope, but to sorrow as those who understand what comes next. This much more has to do with a trust in God, an understanding of who He is. And many struggle with that in even our world today. In fact, many find comfort in this idea that it's just the end. There's nothing hereafter. There's nothing going on. And it's just that's it. Once you're in the ground, you're done. But we know what our Lord has said. We know what He wrote down for us so that we can know there is something that we're that is beyond. And we try to pass that hope on to others, showing them that there is a way of escape. Ungodly mourning. This is one of those subjects, though, that is difficult to describe because of how emotionally tight it is. It's easy for me to stand in a pulpit and say, here's how you're supposed to do things, here's how you're not supposed to do things. That's easy to say. It's hard to navigate. It's hard to navigate, but that's why God has given us so much that we can find comfort in, so much that we can try to keep our focus on, and why He created the church in of itself. We have shoulders that we can lean on. Those who have been there before, those who have faced these difficulties, they know ways that they can navigate to try to help all of us to understand. But more than just the ungodly mourning, we get to talk about the good side too. Don't worry. There is a form of godly mourning. Ways that we can actually experience these things, but we're doing it with God in mind. The first thing that we understand with godly mourning if this will work, sorrowing because of a penitent heart. Sorrowing because of a penitent heart. We read that in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. We understood that that was godly sorrow that produced repentance. I'm mourning over the sins that I've committed and I'm going to make a change. I hurt God, I know that. I'm not going to brush it off as if it's no big deal. I understand there's a seriousness to this. But I'm going to put Him first. I'm going to move towards him. I'm reminded of Acts chapter 2 verse 37 where the people heard Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost and they say, "This is they were pricked in their hearts and said, men and brethren, what shall we do? They understood their lot in life. They understood what they were going to be should they not change. And as a result of that, Peter told them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. He gave them a hopeful message. Something that they say, here's where you are. You understand this is the sinful life that you've lived. And now we get to the good part. We talked about that slightly this morning, how there are many people in the world who they want all the good and the benefits of Christianity, but they're never willing to actually go through the difficulties. They're never willing to look in the mirror and to see that I'm in the wrong. I make mistakes. And I need God. I need His Word to show me the way out to come out of those things. Sorrowing because of a penitent heart is a godly form of sorrow because I understand a message that God told rather than, as we talked about before, just being ourself. It comes from ourself. Sorry I got caught. Sorry I wasn't careful enough. <laughs> this is the godly sorrow that says, I see what God did. I see where I am, and I know what I need to do. But more than that, we sorrow for the souls of the lost. This one can be very depressing. It can be very depressing when you sit and think about all those who are in the world who are against God. And it can bring heartbreak, it can bring shame sometimes to think about those things. You go read the prophets of the Old Testament and how many of them were just struggling with the thought that Israel is lost. Specifically in Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 3, we see how Paul felt about this. He said, I could wish myself were a curse for the nation of Israel. Do you realize what he just said? He said, I would be willing to take their punishment for them if I was allowed. He was sorrowful for those who were lost, he wanted to bring them home. He wanted to show them what God had done for him. Remember, we talked about this morning in the book of 2 Corinthians that it's by the grace of God that Paul was where he was. He thought of himself as the chief of sinners. He understood his station without God. And he wanted to bring those same people, his brothers according to the flesh, bring them towards God. Do we sorrow over those who are lost? Do we feel sorrow for those people hoping that one day we can bring them back? See, the reality is that oftentimes in our world, we become more angry at those who cause us difficulties than we feel sorrow for their wrong. Jesus Himself, when He saw the people of His day, He felt sorrow for them. Now those who were enemies of him, he faced them with severity. He faced them with steadfastness. He said, this will not be accepted. But he always made an opportunity to go to the lost. To teach them the way. In fact, how did he describe his own ministry? He said, they that are holding, not a physician, but they that are sick. those who need Christ to come. He felt sorrow for those people. In fact, over and over again in the New Testament, we read how Jesus was eating and teaching to publicans and to sinners, those who would have been rejected by the vast majority, those who would have been left aside. I mean, think about those people, publicans in particular. These are the Roman collaborators. These are the ones who are working with the people who brought our nation down. How dare you go eat with them? How dare you go teach them? One of my friends at preaching school made a joke about this, and he said, this is the Jonah syndrome. They did wrong, therefore they need to pay for it. But Jesus was always wanting to make an opportunity to show people where they were wrong and to say, this is not where you have to be. You can choose to follow after this path all day long. If this is what you really want to do, I'm not going to stop you, but know there's consequences. No, this is not godly. Do we sorrow for those who are lost? Do we see value in those who are lost? You see, I can't sorrow over the loss of something if I don't see the value in it first. Just think for a moment do you really sorrow over losing a penny? If you're walking down the street and you find out there's a penny missing, I doubt I'm going to walk down Dixie Avenue and see one of you bent over sobbing in the street because you dropped a penny. Why? It's not that valuable. It's not that valuable. Now take that same illustration and say you lost your child. Say you lost your spouse. There's value in that, is there not? There's value in that so much so that the loss of them is a great blow. As Christians, we're trying daily to be Christ-like, to be imitators of Christ. Christ lost what was the most valuable to Him in Genesis chapter 3. And from Genesis chapter 3 all the way to 2023, He's been trying to get them back. He's done everything He can do to bring these people who He sees as the most valuable of His creation, James chapter 1, verse 17, and He wants to bring them back home. But many people in the world will fight Him tooth and nail. I keep hearkening to some of my preaching friends and talking about some of the things they've said, but... Well, if you don't listen to those who are a little bit wiser than you, sometimes you might get missed something. <laughs> but one of them made a statement on one occasion that really struck me. He said, the reality is most people don't want to go to heaven. He said, that's the reality. See, we oftentimes tend to think, if I just showed them, if I just showed them everything that was... Most people don't want to go to heaven. Because to go to heaven requires something. If I want to be a part of God's kingdom, if I want to be in heaven with Him, I will do what's necessary. For sake of illustration, if I were to say, I want a master's degree, you say, great, awesome. Have you signed up for classes? No. You asked for any loans to pay for the school? No. You picked out any books? No. Do you know what master's degree you want? No. Do I really want a master's degree? No. No, because I'm not willing to put in the work. I'm not willing to actually do what's necessary to be that. How we choose to live our lives is where we will end up. How we choose to live our lives following after God determines our outcome. But when we see those who are lost in the world, when we see those who have rejected Him, when we see those who choose not to follow after the Word of God, do we understand the severity of what's happening there? And do we feel sorrow because of their loss? But this is the last one. And I don't know if everyone can see it because it changed the font a little bit, but sorrowing over loss. It's not wrong to mourn. Many like to hide it, to cover it up, to be ashamed of it. It's not wrong to mourn. There's scriptures about this all throughout. We talked about David. David. We talked about all of the examples that happen with him. It's not a wrong thing to mourn for those who have been lost. We discussed what the difference is. There are some who mourn because they don't have hope. That's not the right attitude. But mourning is just a part of life, it's a part of our reality. It's not wrong to do. It's not shameful to do. God understands our pain and understands our suffering. In fact, throughout the Scriptures, we see how David described God throughout the Psalms in particular. Over and over again, he says the Lord is comfort. Think about all that David dealt with in his life. The loss of his son Absalom through what? A rebellion. His son was trying to kill him. the abuse that happened in his family, the shame that he felt for what he had done wrong, the loss of his son that was a result of his sin with Bathsheba. All of those things we can see as examples of what a godly man deals with. Yes, there were mistakes that he made. Yes, there were sins that he committed. But he pushed through those things. He found comfort and strength in God, and the same is true for you and for me. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Do we trust that? Do we trust that we can find comfort in the Lord? Do we trust that we can use His people as well to find that comfort? And are we willing to comfort those who are mourning? It's no accident they said rejoice with those that do rejoice and weep with those who weep. Why? It's easy to be happy with somebody. Most of the time. Some people struggle with a little bit of jealousy on that. But it's easy for the most part to rejoice with those who are rejoicing. Someone has a child that's born to their family and we're all ready to throw a party. But it's just as important to gather around those who have lost. To support those who are mourning, those who are weak, those who are suffering. That is necessary as being part of the Lord's church. But it starts from an understanding of who we are and what we need. What Jesus was teaching through these beatitudes and through each individual step, He's laying the groundwork for who we are as Christians. Remember, at this point, there's no such thing as a Christian. The New Testament church has not been established yet. So Christ is laying the foundation, laying the blueprints of what a Christian is going to look like. And the first thing is, we understand we have a need for God. But the second thing is, we understand our source of comfort. We understand who we can go to. We understand the Word of God that gives us peace that passes all understanding. This was more, this lesson is mostly for just understanding this idea. This is not beating people over the head. This is not wagging the finger at anyone. But helping us to come to grips with this very serious topic. At the end of each of these sermons, we give the Lord's invitation. Not as a moment that we have to point fingers or anything like that, no. But it's also not just for what you do wrong. We offer the Lord's invitation as an opportunity to make whatever is in your life whole or right again. And part of this might be you just need the prayers of the church, you just need support, you just need help. If there's something that's wrong in your life, absolutely we're going to help you fix that tonight. We're in the soul saving business, right? But if you have any need at all, whether that be a thing that's wrong in your life or whether that be difficulties in your life, we leave this opportunity for you to do that. But maybe you're not a member of the Lord's church. You've never named the name of Christ. You've never become a part of this family, of this body of Christ, and you're wondering how that can happen. His path is simple. We must hear the Word, Romans 10, 17. So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. Believing it to be true, John eight twenty four. Upon believing this to be true, we're willing to repent of all of our past sins, Acts 17, 30. And based upon that repentance, that changed mind, just brings a change of life, we're willing to confess the, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And based upon that confession, that acknowledgement, that statement that I'm going to follow after Christ, we will baptize you this very evening washing all those sins away, leaving behind all the guilt, all the shame, all the fear, raised to walk in newness of life as we read in Romans chapter 8. But maybe you did all those things. Maybe you are a member of the Lord's church and you just have allowed the things of this world to come in. Maybe you've been missing that old life that you had before. Maybe you've been sorrowing over the wrong things. Or maybe you just need strength. Whatever your need is, don't hesitate. Don't walk out these doors tonight unsure of where your future is. Don't walk out these doors unsure of anything about your salvation. Come now, as together we stand and as we sing.